0: I'm going to ask uh, Michael to stay up here for just another second, and uh, I'm going to ask him to um, finger out a tune that might be familiar to you if you grew up in church, um, depending on the denomination you grew up in, this, this might be something that you know. Some of you know that? It was taken right out of Scripture. It it may not be very familiar to all of you. Um, It was written by a Civil War general, Major General, General Major, whatever, however it goes, Daniel Webster Whitley. And he literally took Scripture and set it to song. And here's why. He had served in the, in the Civil War at the Battle of Vicksburg and then at Gettysburg. And he watched his nation shredded. He saw brother fighting against brother, cousin against cousin. And he saw the country torn in half. It wasn't long after the Civil War, he met another young man who was traveling the country uh, by the name of D.L. Moody. And Moody invited General Daniel Webster to join him at a work in Chicago. And about a week after he had been there, he sat down and he took these words of Scripture and he wrote, For I know whom I have believed And am persuaded that he is able if you've seen your country ripped in half and, and you've watched people die over war and you can still write those kind of words, for I am persuaded that He is able to keep me against that day. You've got a really mature kind of faith. Would you agree? That, that's, a, that's a sense of understanding that God surpasses everything that's going on in the globe. God is much, much bigger than the issues that we deal with. You might even be able to take it to the degree of supermaturity where Paul wrote this. I would like you to see this one. Paul wrote this in Romans chapter 8. He was also persuaded. He said, "...for I am persuaded that neither death nor life nor angels nor principalities nor powers... Nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Where we're going to go with the text this morning is looking at the concept of being able to rest in your relationship with God. To the degree that even when you see strife and war, maybe stock markets rise and fall, maybe your job is threatened. Maybe you got a bad health report. Maybe you're facing some crisis in your life. To, to the degree that you can even face those kind of circumstances and not lose your peace. So I would ask you a question as we step into Hebrews chapter 4 this morning, and if you have your Bible with you, go ahead and turn there. When the stock markets take a serious downturn, when you get something that easily stresses you out or annoys you, Do you lose your peace? Do you feel that sense of unrest? Do you worry about the future? Or do you rest in His promise? Uh, I'm here to tell you this morning, rest in God doesn't mean freedom from hassle. You're still going to walk out the door of your house someday and find a flat tire in your driveway in your car. And somebody's still going to cut you off in traffic. It doesn't mean freedom from hassles. It means freedom from the hassles stressing you out. It's the kind of rest we're talking about when you can say, I know whom I have believed and I'm persuaded that that one can keep me. When we look at these individuals in the book of Hebrews, we understand they're living with stress that we've never known on a scale that we've never known. To to be thrown into the lions, to be dragged into the Colosseum, to literally see your family members used for nightlights in Nero's courtyard, th- that's a stress on a whole new scale. And that's who is being written to in, in this book. These are individuals who are facing persecution. Now, if you pull your notes out of your bulletin this morning, I've put down three different forms of rest. We're going to really kind of hunker down on the, on the third one, but the first two I want you to see as well, and you'll see them up on the screen. They're in your notes as well, but the, the first rest is the rest of ceasing from work. And that's the one where you just stop doing what you're doing. Your exertion and your labor is over. Students, you might be thinking this morning of spring break. Spring break's coming in and your exertion is going to stop for a little while. You're going to get a break and you're going to have some degree of rest. Well, The second form of rest is the freedom from what disturbs you. And, and that's the rest of um, absence of worry. It means literally to be inwardly quiet, to be at peace. Well, you could take both of those and kind of bear down into the third one. And the third one is God's rest. And and that's the peace with God and the peace of God. And to possess that kind of peace is the peace that only He can give so that you can literally say things like, I'm persuaded that He's able to keep me against that day, like like a Civil War general would write. Now, I put it into two categories there under God's rest because there is two categories. There's, there's letter A. The first rest with God is the peace with God. That's the kind that comes from Romans 5.1 that says we're justified. And if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you have the peace with God this morning. You know what it is to be justified because you know total forgiveness. It's freedom from guilt, even the unnecessary feelings of guilt because Jesus has wiped away all your sins. And then there's letter B, it's the second kind of rest that comes under God's rest, and that's the peace of God. That's the peace we're going to really talk about this morning. That that kind of rest when you have no more reason to fear because you've got absolute trust that in the midst of really hard circumstances, God has still got your backside. So you can say, I know whom I believed, and I know that I stand with Him. Let's go to Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 1 and, and see how this author explains it for us. Just understand this going into it. Um, Hebrews chapter 4 is one of the five most difficult chapters in the entire Bible. It it rates right up there with Daniel chapter 10 and Revelation chapter 20. It's an extremely complicated text. We're going to do what we can to break it down and make it really simplistic this morning. Verse 1 says this, Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. So he uses that word, therefore, the way he starts out all these writings so far, reaching all the way back into chapter 1, back into chapter 2, back into chapter 3, reminding us that Israel was just full of unbelief, and they missed out on God's rest. In other words, they didn't get to enter the promised land. and That's where we left off last week in verse 19. You see this on the screen, Hebrews 3.19. So we see that they were not able to enter because of unbelief. So at this point, he's using the promised land as a metaphor, And he's saying they missed out on an opportunity. They didn't get to enter into their rest simply because they refused to trust God. But do you notice he says the door is still open? He says the promise still stands. It still remains. I'm going to come back to that in just a moment, but let's look at that word fear because he says let us fear. And understand, he's writing to Christians when he writes this. Let us fear. The word is foibeo, and it literally means to be in terror, to be in fear of something to such a degree that it causes you to. Shock that you might miss out on something. Have you noticed recently the TV commercials since the um, television industry has understood that they can really kind of push prescription drugs, perhaps maybe in the last 10 years especially, that when a commercial begins of a a prescription drug, a, a beautiful scene comes on the screen. Somebody's looking out over an ocean or there's a sunset and they begin talking about the benefits of this prescription drug and they begin encouraging you to talk to your doctor about this drug that they're offering on television. And then very subtly underneath, these white words appear at the bottom of the screen that tell you all the side effects of the drug. And it begins warning you that your teeth are going to fall out and your hair is going to fall out and your eyelashes are going to fall out. But at the same time, they say it in such a gentle way that you just kind of glaze right over it and pay no attention to it. Well, why? Because most of us believe that, well, that's only for them. That's only for like 5% of the people because that's what the little report says on the bottom. But, but what if they put an advertisement out there on television that said 99.9% of the people experienced this kind of side effects? It caused you to be in fear of that drug. You wouldn't want to go near it. Well, the the writer of this letter in Hebrews is saying literally be in fear because 99.9% of the people of Israel totally missed out on this opportunity that God was offering them to step into his rest. Joshua and Caleb are the only two out of three million people who got to step into the promised land, the rest of them completely missed out. So this warning is to the readers to take care unless you totally miss out on this promise. And he uses pretty strong words when he says they failed to reach it. Uh, He uses four English words, we do in our modern translation, to represent one Greek word. And I want you to see this one Greek word I'm going to give you this morning on the screen, not because the definition is so important, but because of the tense of the verb behind it. It literally means to fall short of something or to be deficient. But in the Hebrew and in the Greek language, there are certain tenses by which words are written. In the Greek language, this particular word is written in the perfect present tense, which means this. It's an ongoing condition. It doesn't mean it's some past mistake or not some present momentary failure it means this is something that's being repeated over and over and over again. These people are continually failing to reach to what God has offered them. So that's the sense of the perfect tense. Now I want you to understand, what we're talking about here is not a fear of losing your salvation. Some people look at this in chapter 4 and they, they would say, well, that's a fear that we're going to miss out on eternity, that somehow we're going to do something wrong and God is going to yank away our salvation. That is not what this is talking about. As a matter of fact, I'm going to give you a couple of verses this morning just to remind you, you have no reason if you're a believer in Jesus to fear your loss in eternity. First of all, Luke 12:32, Jesus literally saying, "Do not be afraid, little flock, for your Father has chosen gladly to give you the kingdom." That's the attitude by which God gives you eternity. Or look at this one from Hebrews 2. We looked at it a couple of weeks ago. Therefore, since the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise also partook of the same, that through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death. That is the devil. We looked at that a couple weeks ago. You have no reason to fear death. Jesus conquered that. So if this isn't the fear of losing your salvation, and if it's not the fear of death, what is it the fear of? It's the fear, and it's a very real one, of not believing the promises of God for your life that you can miss out on what God intends for you here on planet Earth. And so he's reminding his readers, there once was a generation of people who lived long before you who completely missed out on something that was promised to them. So be careful that you don't make the same mistake. Now, before I go too far forward, I want to explain to you what I meant by the two different forms of rest in God. When I said letter A is, is literally the peace with God, I want you to understand, if you're not a believer in Jesus Christ this morning, and you're just kind of checking out this territory, you're wondering if this is real, I want you to know that this promise that God is offering of His rest still stands, even if you feel like you're not worthy, even if you feel like you'll never measure up and God would never take you in, He still holds the door open. He's waiting for you. God is very, very patient. And he incredibly waits for us. That's just a mind-boggling thing to me. And he calls us over the period of our lifetime. And he waits, and he waits, and he waits, calling us. 2 Peter 3.9 The Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. Let me help you with that in a way of using an illustration of an individual that I know of. His name is Mel. Mel struggled with alcoholism his entire life. And he got to the point where Mel was so consumed with alcohol that he would disappear for two and three weeks at a period of time on binges of drinking. Now, I can identify with Mel because of the background in my family history in which I have relatives who were so consumed with alcohol in their life that it absolutely captivated and controlled them and ripped their families apart. Now, in Mel's particular case, he lived in a period of time when he was the only breadwinner of his family, 1890s. And Mel would disappear and spend all of the money that he earned on alcohol. Uh, He had a two-year-old son at home. And one time after being gone two and a half weeks, Mel came back home to see his wife sitting in a rocking chair, rocking their two-year-old son, who had just died in her arms, and he died from malnutrition. He died because he starved to death, because Mel spent all of his money on alcohol. Now, you would think that event alone would crush Mel, but as a result of seeing what had happened, it drove him deeper into drinking, and that afternoon, he decided, I'm going to quit. I'm going to quit. I'm going to give this up. I'm going to stop. But he couldn't stop himself, and so that night, he broke into the mortuary where his son was laying in a casket, and he literally stole the clothes off from his son's body and took them out into the street and sold them so that he could buy himself another drink. That's how much alcohol had a grasp on his life. Now, it's January, and Mel makes his way into Chicago, and he's wandering the streets of Chicago, and he walks by a place called the Pacific Garden Mission, And somebody invites him inside. Mel comes inside and he hears the gospel story, the story of Jesus Christ. And he knows that his sins can completely be wiped away. Mel Trotter became one of the nation's foremost evangelists, turning his life completely over to Christ, forming and establishing the Mel Trotter missions all over the United States. Why? Because he understood the door still was open to him, no matter how egregious of a sinner that he thought he was there was still forgiveness in Jesus Christ for him so he could know that rest and know that kind of peace. Now, that's the peace with God. Let's talk about the peace of God for believers so that we understand what we're really being called to if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, the peace of God. Go with me to verse 2. It says this, For good news came to us just as to them, but the message they heard did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listened." And listen, literally means understood. It didn't just hear it. They understood it. So the weight is really on the readers here. And if you're reading this, you're included in that. We have the truth. We have the knowledge. And we're being told to act on it in contrast to those of old who did not act on it. Now, if you were here a couple weeks ago, we looked at Numbers 14. And we were being told about how this ancient generation of Israel didn't trust God. They didn't believe that God really had their best interests at heart. So he's referring to the good news coming to us, and it came to them. Well, you would look at it and say, well, when did the good news, the gospel, come to those people in the Old Testament? I thought that was just for people who were New Testament believers. Where does it say in the Old Testament that God has good news for them? Let me take you all the way back to the book of Exodus. In the book of Exodus, we have Moses on Mount Sinai standing with God, And God reveals himself to Moses, and look what God says about himself in Exodus chapter 34. Then the Lord passed by in front of him and proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness and truth, who keeps loving kindness for thousands, who forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin. These are the three biggies with God. Transgression, iniquity, and sin. And what does God do with that? He forgives it. See, that's the good news. That's the gospel story. The good news is that God will forgive you. And they had it in the Old Testament. They understood. And that's why the writer can say in verse 2, good news came to us and and it came to them. But they didn't latch on to it. See, here's the sense. God is for them. He's for us. God has our best interest at heart. So they had the good news, we have the good news, but the sense is, even though the word was clear to them and they heard it, it's not mixed with any faith whatsoever. They don't own it. Can we do the same thing today? Can we be in the place where we hear the good news and we know that God is for us, but we don't own it? We're not willing to step into that territory that he's maybe called us to. Those really hard areas that we talked about a couple weeks ago. Perhaps the land that's filled with giants and you think, man, God couldn't possibly be calling me there. See, it's really plain here. It's not enough to hear the message. You've got to act on it. The Word does really very little good for you if you refuse to believe it. Uh, let's go into verse 3 and 4. It, it's kind of complicated, but we're going to break it down. Verse 3 says this, "'For we who have believed enter that rest, as he has said, as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest.'" Although his works were finished from the foundation of the world, now there's three tenses going on there: past, present, and future. In, in this particular verse, you would look at and say, "Man, now I see why people stay out of the Book of Hebrews. I mean, that's very confusing. It's a complicated sentence." But understand what's coming out of here, and here's what I want to bear down on: this rest that God's promising you is not just future; it's not just when you enter into eternity. There's a peace that you can know right now in your life that passes all understanding. And so this individual says his works were finished from the foundation of the world, meaning that God completing his works at creation. So this is something that's been available to mankind for generations preceding the Exodus generation it's been available to us for a very very long time let me help you with that by going to verse 4 it says this for he has spoken somewhere of the seventh day in this way and god rested on the seventh day from all his works and again in this passage he said they shall not enter my rest now some of you recognize that quote in verse 4 and would say i know that that looks really familiar to me that, that, that comes from the old testament anybody know which book that's out of Genesis, that's right. Some of you know your Bible really well, and you say, he's quoting Genesis 2. Some of you know your Bible really well, and you'd say, he's quoting Genesis two, 2, Well, in the first century, the Bible was not so easy as it is today in the sense of this. It wasn't broken down into chapters and verses. It wasn't so easy for people to pull out a scroll and say, oh, there's where it says it in Genesis 2, two. He couldn't possibly say Genesis 2, 2. It didn't exist. All he had was a long scroll. So he says someone has said somewhere on the seventh day God rested. Now he's reaching back to the creation story for a reason about this issue of rest. When you look at Genesis 1 and Genesis 2, this is what you see. And the first day, in morning and evening, and God rested. In the second day, morning and evening, God rested. In the third day, morning and evening, and morning and evening and morning and evening. And then you get to the seventh day. And it doesn't say morning and evening. It just says everything that God was creating was done, and he ceased from all his work. We simply read that God rested from everything that he had been doing. Now, this is a very important setup to where we're going with the next verse. Let me show you what Dr. Gablin had to say about that passage. He says this, There we simply read that God rested from all his work, This does not mean that God entered a state of idleness, but the completion of creation marks the end of a magnificent whole. There was nothing to add to what God had done. Now when God gave the Sabbath day, the day of rest, Old Testament, part of the Ten Commandments, He said what? Remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy, for in it... God rested and gave us a reference to creation himself when he gave the Ten Commandments. So the Sabbath rest was instituted as a symbol of something. It was instituted as a symbol of the fact that it is finished. God completed his work. But it was just a symbol or a shadow of the true rest that would be found in Jesus. And so Jesus could also say at the end of his work, God the Father, God the Son, God the Son said, it is is finished he completed all of his work now i want to help you with sabbath understanding as we move forward because sabbath was really instituted as a celebration of god's presence Not as the rule system that we think of when we think of the Jewish people when they thought of, well, you can't mow your lawn on Sunday or you can't walk more than a mile on Sunday. It's not an issue of legalism. Let me take you to Colossians 2.16. It says this, "...let no one act as your judge in regard to food or drink or in respect to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath day, things which are a mere shadow of what is to come, but the substance belongs to Christ." Now, when you see the word Sabbath used here, it's used in association with celebration. Because if you look at the book of Deuteronomy and you look at the book of Numbers, every time God said, I want you to rest, it was in association with celebrating something, celebrating the presence of God, God's provision, God caring for us. Now, while that resonates in your mind, I want to paint a picture for you that requires us to step back to the week of creation. Picture Adam and Eve. They're created in perfect righteousness. They don't know sin. Sin doesn't exist. And so there's no presence whatsoever of anxiety or stress or frustration or heartache. Matter of fact, what they know is walking with God. They walk and talk with God as naturally as they walk and talk with each other. The Bible actually says that God showed up in the cool of the day in the garden and walked and talked with them. So what they know is relationship with God. And their only true need is their rest in God. Why is that? Because God completed his perfect work when he completed creation. And they are his perfect work. That's why when you get to the end of six days of creation, it says that God looked and he said, Everything was very good. And he rested. And so you find Adam and Eve in the midst of that setting where they're his perfect creation, and they're completely content in him, and they're his perfect work, and so they rest in him. And then the usurper shows up, Lucifer. And when the usurper shows up, they lose their trust in God. They no longer believe that God has their best interest at heart. They no longer believe that God has their back, and they lost his rest And from that moment, man apart from God has been restless. And so the entire working of God throughout human history is to be bringing man back into his rest. But there was a barrier, and the barrier was sin. So God had to send Jesus to remove that barrier so we could step back into the relationship and know rest again through Jesus Christ. This is the concept of this rest that we're talking about. So when we move forward into verse 6, this is what the author has in mind. Go with me to verse 6. So, since therefore it remains for some to enter into it, and those who formerly received the good news failed to enter because of disobedience, again, he appoints a certain day, Today, saying through David, he's talking about back in Psalm 95, David, so long afterwards, and the words already quoted, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. See, when man lost God's rest, God began a recovery process immediately. And he intends for us to know that rest. It was part of his purposes. So that's why he says in verse 7, today, if you hear his voice, don't harden your heart to this. God wants you to know that rest. I'm here to tell you this morning, if, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ and your life is full of turmoil and you're unsettled, and you're constantly filled with anxiety and worry and fear, the, the, the lack of provision is not on God's part. We're no different than those in the Old Testament. It's because of disobedience and disbelief that keeps us from trusting God in the midst of those really, really hard times. Because what he's talking about here is a spiritual rest. It's not a physical rest so much. That's why he says what he does in verse 8, which has been all of this kind of a setup for verse 8. Look at this. For if Joshua had given them rest, talking about a physical rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. So then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. So there remains a Sabbath rest rest he's talking about is not this physical rest, the promised land. Joshua could have given him that because he did lead, lead a future generation into that. That was only a picture. God's true rest doesn't come through a Moses or through a Joshua. It doesn't come through a better stock portfolio. It doesn't come through greater job security. God's true rest really comes through Jesus. And so this author uses something that's unique to the entire Bible when he uses the word Sabbath. When we see the word Sabbath, and if you're a Bible scholar, you might think the word Shabbat because it was the word for Saturday, the word Sabbath makes you think, well, that's the day the Jews shut down, the day they didn't do anything. They wouldn't barely even cook, and they usually cooked all their meals in advance. They wouldn't even have to cook on that Saturday. But that's not the word that he uses here, and it's the first time and the only time the word ever appears in the Bible. It's the word sabbatismos. You should know this, the word sabbatismos doesn't appear anywhere in Christian Greek literature until it shows up in the book of Hebrews, and here's what's unique about it. The word sabbatismos was the word that was always associated with the festival celebration of God, God's provision, as opposed to the Sabbath rest in which individuals shut down, they wouldn't mow their lawn anymore. It's not talking about legalism. It's talk about celebrating the presence of who God is. Dr. Gleason had this to say about that word. The emphasis of the word is not on the occasion of daily activities, but rather on unhindered opportunity for the people of God to celebrate God's life-sustaining presence among them. See, I understand this to have present and future implications, church. How we enjoy God today is representative of our Future enjoying God's rest. This is what Sabbatismus was. Sabbath rest was meant for a time of festival praise. It was a time when people actually sacrificed animals. They made sacrifices on the altar to worship God's provision for them. It was a time when they would enjoy singing together. Festival praise. What are they celebrating? God's provision. And do you notice that it has its origins in creation? That's why he said, someone has said somewhere, God rested on the seventh day. He's reaching all the way back to the foundation of the world saying, this predates the Israelites. This predates the Egyptian wanderings, the people who went out on the Exodus. This is something that God instituted from the beginning of time. And he said it still remains available for us today to know this rest. And it's the ideal rest. Why? Because it's provided by God. Do you notice what it says there in that last verse? For the people of God in verse 10. In other words, you've got to know Jesus Christ to know this kind of rest. And it's really a spiritual maturity kind of rest. It's the kind of rest that we see that this author is saying we've got to strive towards it. Others cannot enjoy it and cannot know it if they don't know Jesus Christ. Now let's take everything that we know about Hebrews so far and bring it home. We've got a group of people who have received this letter from this unknown author. They're being killed. They're being dragged into the Colosseum and used for entertainment with the gladiators. They're serving time in dungeons. They're tempted to run back to Judaism, those that are, have that are not been captured yet. They're tempted to run back to the safe haven of Judaism because Rome sanctions Judaism. But this author is pleading with them. And begging with them to recognize what you have in Jesus can give you a peace that passes all understanding. So imagine if all you know is death and war and persecution. Rest is a pretty good goal, would you not say? Rest, rest is going to run pretty high on the scale if that's all you know. See, the concept of rest is a beautiful thing to someone who is weary and worn out and striving, trying to do things on their own, trying to earn their own sense of peace. And that's why I see this writer of this song saying, I know whom I believed in, and I am persuaded that he is able to keep me. So the author of Hebrews says in verse 11, You're exhorted to do something, believers in Jesus Christ. Look with me, verse 11. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fail by the same sort of disobedience. Not only is this available to us all, according to Scripture, it's expected of us. It's a measure of our maturity in Christ. How we lean into God Versus leaning into our own understanding. You remember that verse from last week? In all your ways, acknowledge Him. He will make your paths straight. Lean into God, not into your own understanding. I, I close this morning with just the most simplest quote I could possibly find from Dr. Warren Wearsby. He said it in the most beautiful way. This is probably a sermon in 10 seconds. He says this It is by believing that we enter into eternal rest, it is by obeying God by faith and surrendering to his will that the rest enters into us. Kind of a cool thought. Let me pray for you right now, church. Father, I'm confident that there's individuals right now who are asking, how do I get that? How do I make that part of my life? And I'm sure there's even mature believers here this morning that are thinking that same thing. Remind us, Father, that it's, it's through leaning into You. It's through knowing Your Word. And it's painfully obvious, Father, that it's only through trusting You. So when You bring us to those hard times, God, keep us from the temptation of running back to the safe haven of a, an old life or the things that we used to know or substances that we might have leaned into. Help us to lean into You. And the more we trust you, Father, I know that you will reveal yourself. So, Father, that's what I pray for, for our congregation this morning, for those that have been here in the previous services, that throughout this week you will remind us that you are for us. If you went to the length of forgiving us, you're also willing to give us that peace that passes all understanding. Father, I ask that you would drive that truth deep into our hearts. And as a result, we would be better reflectors of your light to the people around us, that we would not be people who are consumed with stress, but rather we would be people who are consumed with rest, and that we would reflect that peace that passes all understanding. Father, I ask that in Jesus' mighty name for your church and for his sake, amen.